Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given to us. And, and now as we consider uh, another week, this topic of global missions, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us according to your will. Give us tender hearts, cause us to um, respond to that which is true and right for your honor and your glory. Father, we pray that you would eliminate from our minds any thoughts that are not in accordance with your will. May you receive glory for it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I need to begin by thanking you for your prayers this week. Many of you, I know, prayed for me. Um, my brain is a delicate thing, apparently, and I have no control over, over what happens. So uh, many have asked how I'm doing, and, and I will say I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, it was kind of a tough week for me, but uh, I thank you for your prayers. And now, on to something of importance. We're considering the topic of global missions from the threefold perspective of thinking, loving, and doing. Last week, we considered how we ought to think about missions as we were challenged by our Lord's Great Commission to make disciples from all the world. This week, I want to consider loving and doing. Our, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, and then our actions. What, how does that apply to our view of global missions? Last time, we attempted to establish from Scripture that global missions is a biblical and binding obligation for every Christian to be engaged in one way or another. To fall short in exercising our opportunities with regards to missions is a mark of either ignorance to what Jesus taught, indifference to what Jesus commanded, which is scary, or outright disobedience, which is scarier. This morning, in a bit, I want to consider that one way or another aspect but first, I want to suggest we take an honest, personal look at the state of our own hearts regarding this important matter. Because no one other than the Holy Spirit can assess the true motives of our hearts, and no man can tell us what exactly and specifically God requires of us, individually concerning this, I want to be careful to avoid techniques of carnal emotional manipulation or appeal. Though there is much emotion attached to this topic, certainly for me. We need to avoid guilt manipulation. Although where we are guilty of disobedience to the Great Commission, we need to repent. We must resist living under the tyranny of legalism or its new covenant cousin, Moralism, that would neither be my intent nor be healthy and serve our purposes this morning. Rather, I simply want to set forth the reality of the topic and ask that the Holy Spirit do His work in our hearts 
according to our true heart conditions, the needs that are here, and his specific will for us. And keep in mind, we are not merely intellectual beings, we are emotional beings as well. Listen to the words of David Mathis. Will the Western church heed the great commission call to disciple the nations? Or will we turn increasingly inward, caught up in our own internal affairs or controversies? Might it be that as our context continues to become increasingly post-Christian and progressively awakens our collective awareness to the global spiritual battle lines with Islam, new atheism, viral secularism, and pervasive pragmatism, we realize that our differences or tertiary issues, and many considered secondary, with fellow lovers of Jesus' biblical person and work are not as towering as we once thought. Mathis raises a serious question. It demands, if we are going to adequately respond to it, a sincere, brutally honest self-evaluation. Are we as in love with Jesus Christ as we like to say we are? Do we love the person, Jesus, or do we merely love the idea of Jesus and what he has done and is doing? And do we get to define who he is and what what he has done means? Let me remind you of what he did beyond just for you personally and what he said to us. He paid the penalty to redeem all his elect from every people group on the face of the earth. And he has commanded us to go find them and tell them and to gather them into the fold and teach them to obey all that he commanded them so that they can do likewise. Can you see them? Can you picture them in your mind? Can you see the lost people in our community, our local mission field? The Hispanic people in Central and South America? The Native American people living within our national boundaries? Can you see the Pacific Islanders? The Buddhists in the Far East? The Hindus of India? The Muslims of the Middle East? Can you see the thoroughly secular Europeans? Can you see the Africans, northern, sub-Saharan, and southern, many still steeped in pagan animism? There are the elect among them. Many need to hear the gospel for the first time. Many are already believers, but desperately need instruction from the word of God. Would you not long for our brothers and sisters around the globe to have the privilege that you and I have week in and week out to hear solid biblical exposition from the pulpits of their churches? Do you not care that there are groups of believers gathering together for worship and instruction today who are certainly able to worship but do not receive teaching because there is no one able to teach them. It is not at all uncommon, even to this day in Africa, 
for so-called evangelists and church planters, and I use that term loosely, to go out into the bush villages and preach a gospel message. Often the village will respond enthusiastically, particularly if the village chief responds enthusiastically. And many will declare themselves Christians. And it often proves to be true that there are some genuine believers among them. Then the preachers will ask around for someone who can read. When they find the one or two who are able to read, they will select one, give him a copy of the Bible, sometimes I've found only a Gospel of John, and declare this person to be the pastor of the new church there and leave. Are we okay with that? Are we willing to simply turn an indifferent eye toward this reality? I have met some of those pastors, and almost all of them are desperately hungry to the point of begging for biblical teaching and pastoral training. Some people wonder why I cannot tear my heart away from the saints in Africa. I want to read a quote from Pastor Rick Warren that I think, no matter what you may think of some of his approach to theology in the Christian life, must give us cause for serious thought. Pastor Warren says, I believe you can judge the health of a church not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. You don't judge the health of an army by how many soldiers sit in the mess hall and eat every week and listen to your Bible study. You judge the health of an army by how many are on the front line doing battle in the world. We want to be able to bring them in, build them up, train them forward, and send them out. And to do so, we must be able to teach people not only to love the word, but also to do the word. And so we consider the second part of our threefold approach, loving. To what extent should our hearts be engaged in global missions? To what extent are our hearts engaged in global missions? Do we even care? Michael Haken and C. Jeffrey Robinson Sr. authored an informative book, To the Ends of the Earth. In this work, they studied the impact on world evangelism that can be traced to the activities and teaching of John Calvin and subsequent reformers and reformed churches, exposing the lie of the stereotype that Calvinism must result in an indifference to or a refusal to witness for the gospel. They are not true Calvinists who despise evangelism. In this book, the authors rightly insert evangelism under the broad category of building and furthering the kingdom of God on the earth. They give four primary motivations for extending Christ's kingdom. First and foremost was the glory of God. Then we are to evangelize for the simple reason that we have been commanded to do so by Christ, which we looked at to some extent last week. Moreover, bearing witness to the faith is pleasing to God. Finally, compassion for the lost condition of people also should drive Christians to witness. And I would add, 
knowledge of the weak and fragile condition of the church of Jesus Christ among most of the people groups of the world should move us with compassion and desire to do whatever we can to serve and assist our brothers and sisters in their personal as well as church and kingdom lives. Briefly then, for we are constrained by time, let's consider a couple of these loving motivations this morning. First, love for God and His glory. As we emphasized last week, it has always been God's intention to fill the earth with His glory. Consider the remarkable story found in Acts chapter 10 through chapter 11 verse 18. Here we read the account of Peter's vision of a great sheet descending from heaven to the earth filled with all manner of animals that Peter was commanded by a voice to kill and eat. Peter protested. He said that these animals were against his orthodox law to eat because they were common or unclean. Then he was told, What God has made clean, do not call common. This naturally was perplexing to Peter. In conjunction with this event, we are told, was a centurion by the name of Cornelius, an upright and God-fearing man who sent messengers to Peter requesting that he come to Caesarea to teach him. You know the story. Here God was using Peter to begin working out the Great Commission, the gospel going to the Gentiles, and it was validated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentile believers, just as had happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost on the Jewish believers. Chapter 10 ends with Peter commanding them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Redemptive history was taking a dramatic turn. So Peter went back to Jerusalem, and the apostles and brothers there demanded an explanation. And Peter recounted his vision and the subsequent events with the clear understanding that God was now extending the gospel to the Gentiles. Now listen to verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. There it is. With the advent of missionary activity, we see that the advance of the gospel glorifies God. Secondly, love for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, what our Lord did for his elect. Andy Johnson, in the book we referred to last week, Missions, says... The heart for God-glorifying missions starts with joy in the gospel. Our churches must first cherish the God who sent his own son to save sinners like us. The British East India Company said at the beginning of the 19th century, the sending of Christian missionaries into our eastern possessions is the maddest, most expensive, most unwarranted project that was ever proposed by a lunatic enthusiast. 
course, he was speaking specifically of William Carey. The English lieutenant governor of Bengal said at the close of the 19th century, in my judgment, Christian missionaries have done more lasting good to the people of India than all other agencies combined. We do not need to apologize in any sense for missionary endeavors across the globe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is redemptive for entire cultures as well as for individuals. We were created as God's image bearers and we function best and flourish most as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though India has since then rejected the light that they had once received, for a time, many in that land enjoyed the profound blessings of God and many saints were rescued from the snares of the evil one. Please note, for your encouragement, that even as we speak, there appears to be another great outpouring of gospel witness in India. The elect will be brought in. God's faithful ministers there are seeing much fruit. Third, love for truth. One of the outstanding character traits of Satan is that he is the great deceiver the father of lies. His goal is to deceive as many people as he possibly can for as long as he can. His destiny is the damning wrath of God. But he would take as many of God's image bearers as he can with him, even if it were possible, the elect. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. For the sake of the truth, both metaphysically and personally, we must labor as faithfully and tirelessly as we can to point the lost to Jesus and expose the believers to all that he has commanded them. With love for the lost. In Romans 15, 20 and 21, Paul said, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Fifth, love for the elect. Here Andy Johnson again. Calling and discipling all the peoples saved by the Lamb is the primary mission of missions. Whatever other good things a church may choose to do, that great vision must be our most fundamental objective and the joy toward which we labor. Would anything less be worthy of the one who came into the world to save sinners? I can tell you about the young lady named Natalia in Moscow, Russia, to whom I gave a Bible. She was a believer in Jesus in a very hostile culture and never imagined in her life that she would actually have her very own copy of the Holy Scriptures. With disbelief, she stared at me when I handed her a copy 
of God's written word. And when she finally realized it was hers, she broke down with tears of gratitude. I'll never forget her. I can tell you about the man from Kenya, a professing Christian who had seen so much death and devastation in his lifetime, who had seen his family, including his wife and daughter, murdered during recent political rioting, that he had decided to end his own life. God brought him to one of our conferences where he was confronted with the claims on his life of God's holy and righteous providence. And he realized that it would be a violation of his faith to commit suicide. He told me he now understood that his life had dignity and purpose and that he still had things to do in the service of the living God. I can tell you about the teacher from Uganda who, although a believer in Jesus, lived his life in mortal fear of the demon birds that had power to curse the circumstances of his life if he was unlucky enough not to be able to avoid hearing their call to him. He shared with me with profound relief and joy that he was finally relieved from that bondage. For he now understood that the God of the Bible is not only creator over all that exists, but is sovereign over everything with a heart of grace, mercy, and patient compassion for his beloved, his elect. And I could go on, but I will ask you, who will train these people? I'll suggest what I've seen. Often, nobody will train them. So they are dependent upon their own private interpretation and application of what they think the Bible is talking about. Usually that amounts to a blend of folksy wisdom and personal preference or fancy, hardly glorifying to God, mostly heresy. Very common among those who have a tad more exposure to Christianity is a syncretistic blend of biblical ideas and traditional paganism. This leads to utter confusion and spiritual schizophrenia. With increased frequency, we see the impact of false prophecies and the prosperity gospel spreading like a cancer across the, the globe. Who will fight to stem the flow of this spiritual plague? And what about the relentless voices of skepticism, unbelief, Atheism, which our enemy and his henchmen ceaselessly whisper into the ears or minds of the weak or struggling. Who will fight for the spiritual sanity of our brothers and sisters and spend themselves for the purity God's church in Africa and other developing cultures? Can we love global missions for these reasons? Will we? So we come to the last of our three approaches to our topic, that of doing. Now, before I proceed, I need to emphatically make this disclaimer. Please hear this. I am not at all suggesting that global missions is the only way we can fulfill our Lord's Great Commission. It is not. Did you hear that? 
So don't misinterpret what I'm saying because that would contradict my purposes in this lesson. However, having said that, I do believe that global missions is increasingly being neglected among our churches to the detriment of the health of the church and the peace and joy of our calling in Christ. And because of that, the missions industry, if I may use such a term, is handicapped and suffering. It is not nearly as effective in the 21st century as it was in the 19th century. And I think there are correctable reasons for that. So what might we do? It has been observed that the only one among the 12 apostles who did not become missionaries became a traitor. Interesting. Well, first of all, our personal commitment. It has been said that we are to be either goers or senders. For the sake of time today, I will forego the obvious challenge to appeal that every Christian honestly, prayerfully, and seriously consider whether or not God might be calling you to put feet to your confession. But let me only ask one question. Have you ever honestly and sincerely asked God to let you go serve him through missions? I will tell you honestly that most of my life I have prayed that God would not forbid me from being his minister, even on the foreign field of missions. I remember as a child, whenever there was a missionary appeal asking who will go, I always responded with, I'll go. Often, I have prayed, please God, let me go. Indeed, I recall as a young man, as I began to become more and more aware of the evils and hypocrisy of my own heart, fearing that I would not be permitted to be a minister of God's truth in my life. I recall praying earnestly, Oh God, do not put me on the shelf. Please, keep me in the battle, even though it be painful and difficult, and even though I'm very often inept incompetent, and rebellious. I couldn't stand the thought of the alternative. To this day, even though my flesh, my fickle heart, and at times my feeble mind argue with me that I'm unfit to be a spokesman for the glory of God and his gospel truth, I can hardly stand the thought that I might not be able to be actively involved in ministering according to my areas of giftedness for the souls of men. I have to believe that is because God has put this on my heart. But let me ask you this. If God would call you to missions, are you willing? However, if we are not called and therefore gifted and equipped to be goers, we are not exempted from the claims of our Lord's commission. In that case, we must be engaged in sending those who can and will go. Otherwise, how do we personally obey the Great Commission? But how are we doing as senders? Who are we sending? Who are we encouraging and training and equipping and outfitting and supporting? Who are we sending 
to be the goers with our endorsements to fulfill our obligation to make disciples of all nations. Who is in the queue readying and preparing for the conditions to be in place so that they can go and represent us in baptizing and teaching the disciples we are together with them making. Along with personal commitment, there is, secondarily, prayer. I find it interesting that in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is exhorting the saints there in Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God, that he ends it by asking for prayer for his missionary activity. Verses 17 to 20. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me to, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's a missionary prayer request. We believe in prayer. For countless reasons, we understand that we are completely dependent upon God for both the desires of our heart and the fulfillment of those desires. Our desire, which is itself a gift from God, is that God would enable his servants to do his will faithfully and glorify him abundantly. And we know that so much goes into that and so many things can go wrong. In such a fallen and broken world, absolutely nothing can be either sustained or moved forward without God's blessing. That even includes our attempts at serving him through missions. Genuine, importunate prayer support is one way we can participate in the Great Commission when we cannot physically go. Do you regularly remember your ministers and your missionaries in prayer? Also, consider recruitment. Encouraging saints to seriously consider spending their lives as missionaries. Let me offer what may be a very awkward question, but... It is a question that I know for a fact that many of us are asking because we have talked about it. Are we at Pacific Hope Church intentionally exhorting one another and our youth to consider becoming missionaries? Are we? Honestly now, based on what we are saying and doing, why should any of our youth or our non-youth, for that matter, even consider the idea of giving their lives to global missions. The Southern Baptist Convention once presented a call for some 40 different areas of missionary vocation. Hold on. Agriculture, architecture, bookkeeping, bookstore management, business administration, camp direction, chaplaincy, conference direction, dormitory house parents, English-speaking pastors, field evangelism, goodwill centers, graphic arts, 
mass communications, medical ministries, anesthetists, dentists, doctor, hospital administrator, lab technician, nurse, public health specialist, music education and promotion, music and church drama, press service, printing, publications, radio and TV promotion, religious education and promotion, school administration, secretarial work, social work, student work, teaching, seminary, college, institute, secondary school, primary school, kindergarten, training union work, and women's work. What are our people able and willing to do? Are we willing to do it for the sake of Christ's church, Christ's kingdom around the globe? Really, is there a legitimate need for missionaries? Is there still a mission field? Consider these observations. Some of these statistics may be a bit dated, but they are illustrative, and I can't imagine that things have gotten more encouraging in the last few years. According to the latest available statistics, the ratio of Protestant missionaries to population in strategic world areas shows 1,448 ministers per million people in the United States. Okay, let that be our standard that we measure the other numbers by. 1,448 ministers per million people in the United States. Frankly, not enough. 56 missionaries per million people in Africa. 30 missionaries per million people in South America. 15 missionaries per million people in India. Three missionaries per million people in Indochina. Moreover, much of Europe, with its approximately 500 million people, is largely unevangelized, and virtually all communist-controlled countries are legally closed to missions work. More than 2 billion of the Earth's inhabitants are either pagan, atheistic, or non-Christian. There are approximately 800 million communists, all militant atheists. There are approximately 700 million Muslims, all anti-Christians. And there are almost a billion Indians and Chinese and other kindred Asians. So where are our priorities? 9% of the world's population speak English. 90% of the world's Christians come from the 9% who speak English. 94% of the ordained ministers in the world serve the 9% who speak English. 96% of the church's income 96% of the church's income is spent among the 9% who speak English. Well, then there is simply thinking about missions and teaching our children, helping our children develop a global perspective. Let me offer some suggestions. One, develop a heart for the nations. There are some great resources to inform us and help us with that. Voice of the Martyrs, their website, www.persecution.com. 
www.operationworld.com. Operation World, website www.operationworld.org. Frontier Missions International, www.frontlinemissions.info. They produce an excellent, excellent series of DVDs called Dispatches from the Front. I defy you to watch those and not be moved. Open Doors, www.opendoorsusa.org. Equipping Leaders International, my organization, www.equippingleadersinternational.org. International Training and Equipping Ministries, our friend Steve Van Horn, who our church helps www.itemministries.org. There are many others. Find them. Secondly, instill a heart for the nations in our families. There could be no greater joy for Christian parents than to see our children give up their personal and selfish ambitions and yes, even their lives if called to do so for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Even if it means leaving home and going to the far reaches of the earth. And that is nothing now compared to a few decades ago before modern methods of transportation and the internet for communication and information. I confess, I take very little pleasure in hearing parents and especially grandparents boast about their children's secular or temporal achievements and so-called successes. For most of the time, those very things cement their hearts more solidly and deeply in the matters of this world and this world system. Unless the stated and actual goal of it all is to glorify God and take dominion for the advancement of his kingdom, I recognize it as the pursuit of the American dream rather than the exercise of the Great Commission. Oh, that we would realize that the treasures and pleasures of this world are only carnal and that they will vanish like the mist soon enough. Wood, hay, and stubble. Read again and again and again and yet again. Hebrews chapter 11. What do we know about those faithful ones recorded in that glorious chapter? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Read missionary biographies. There are many, many wonderful missionary biographies. Peggy and I used to read missionary biographies to our children. 
to the point probably where they got sick of it. <laughs> but we did it. You can't read them without being moved and thrilled and often convicted if you love the Lord of those missionaries. Invite missionaries to your home. Demonstrate that kind of selfless hospitality for your children. Sometimes to meet a need through hospitality. Sometimes to talk to them about missions and their ministries. Pray aloud for the nations. Again, Operation World is a wonderful handbook that goes country by country and describes the state of the church and the, and the concerns of the gospel in countries around the world. Pray aloud for missionaries. Have children do something tangible for missionaries. Projects, making gifts, giving out of their allowance, making posters or bulletin boards for their bedrooms to remind them. You moms are brilliant at thinking of these kinds of things. You dads must set the tone. Have children become pen pals with missionary kids. And many, many other ideas. Here is something I find quite curious. Bear with me here. We live in a time in our nation when we bend over backwards to praise and honor our military personnel, and other public servants who put themselves in dangerous situations, as is right. This is a far cry from how it was back when I was in the Air Force during the inglorious Vietnam War days, when we servicemen were despised by our peers. It is more as it should be today. I find it interesting that so many Encourage our young people to pursue military careers, even though we know that there is a chance they may be called into combat and may make what we call the ultimate sacrifice for their country. Our breasts swell with pride as our youth give their talents and skills and sometimes lives. Yet so many parents shrink from the idea of their children leaving the comforts of middle-class communities to go to the front lines of the battlegrounds for the eternal souls of men and women around the globe. Why is that, do you think? Well, thirdly, financially, even sacrificially, support missions. Here's an interesting observation. It has been suggested that the number one discouragement and stress producer for most missionaries is the matter of financial support. Most missionaries will tell you that the hardest thing they have to do, the thing they hate the most about this vital Christian ministry, is raising and maintaining support. Frankly, the financial circumstances surrounding ministry Global missions in particular boggles my mind. I don't intend to belabor the point here for multiple reasons, but I at least want to challenge you with this food for thought. Oscar Lowry once said, if the Protestant people of America alone were tithing their income, we could easily evangelize the entire world and put a copy of the Bible into the hands of every heathen on earth inside of 10 years. According to government statistics, we are spending annually in this country at least $600 for luxuries 
for every dollar we spend for missions. We spend in America more for tobacco in a single year than both the United States and Canada have spent for missions since white men came to America. It was reported in the Wesleyan Methodist that Robert Arthington of Leeds in England, brother, you probably know where that is, a Cambridge, Cambridge graduate lived in a single room cooking his own meals. And he once gave foreign missions 500,000 pounds on the condition that it was, to, was all to be spent on pioneer work within 25 years. He wrote these words, Gladly would I make the floor my bed, a box my chair, and another box my table, rather than that men should perish for want of the knowledge of Christ. What do we forego of this life's trinkets that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be proclaimed in its fullness to every nation? We love that famous quote by the missionary martyr, Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We love to quote him, but could we sincerely say it for ourselves? What does the typical American church look like through the eyes of a missionary? Consider this anecdote from Moody Monthly Magazine, dated, I think, from a bygone era, but with adjustments still applicable. A missionary at home on furlough was invited to a dinner at a great summer resort where he met many women of prominence and position. After dinner, he went to his room and wrote a letter to his wife. Apparently, this was before the day of email and text messaging. He said, Dear wife, I've had dinner at the hotel. The company was wonderful. I saw strange things today. Many women were present. There were some who, to my certain knowledge, wore one church, 40 cottage organs, and 20 libraries. In his great longing for money to provide the gospel for hungering millions, he could not refrain from estimating the silks, satins, and the diamonds of the guests at the dinner in terms of his people's needs. Well, that might be more amusing than convicting, but let me offer this quote for your consideration. Jacob Chamberlain once said, Every church should support two pastors, one for the thousands at home, the other for the millions abroad. Is it all worth it? Is the Great Commission really our Lord's will for the expansion and building of his kingdom, his church? Again, if there is any doubt, I refer you once more to the myriad of missionary biographies. Let me simply mention just this one little testimony. On one of the new Hebrides in the South Pacific is the lonely grave of a Presbyterian missionary, the Reverend John Getty. A marble slab bears the following inscription. When he came here, there were no Christians. When he went away, there were no heathen. Well, we've just nicked the surface of this topic. May God give us grace that however he gifts us and enables us, we may, as his people, be faithful in laboring to fill the earth with his glory. May he not hinder us 
from making disciples in all the world. Father, help us to be obedient as you put it upon our hearts, to be engaged actively as individuals and as a church in filling the earth with your glory through the ministry of global missions. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.